0: And I invite you to come and join me as we take a pause in our busy day and pursue soul care, as we allow our bodies to slow down and our minds to be renewed with goodness, truth, and hope. This is PRN. Pause, renew, next. Hey guys, I'm so glad that you're joining me here today. This is our second episode in our new attachment series. Last week was the first one, and we just did the briefest of intros. It was like sitting on the stairs in the shallow end of the pool. But today, be prepared, because we're going to wade on in together. I hope that you guys like history, because today's episode, we're going back in time to see the beginnings of attachment theory and where it came from. If you ever took Psychology 101, a lot of this will sound familiar, but I guarantee you don't remember all the specifics. And if we're gonna talk about attachment, again, I wanna do it well, so let's look at the foundations of where this theory came from. So if you're ready, let's just go ahead and get started. So if we're gonna go in a time machine to the early 1900s, we would begin to see the first real parenting books and information coming out on the scene, There's always been knowledge being passed on about parenting, the parenting norms, all that kind of stuff. But as far as actual parenting ideas in the culture, books, articles, all that kind of stuff, it really was starting to take off in the early 1900s. And the theory of the day, the most popular one that was all over the place, was behaviorism. B.F. Skinner was one of the founders of behaviorism. You've probably heard of him And behaviorism is exactly what it sounds like. It's looking at behaviors and talking about explaining them in terms of conditioning. We don't look at emotions or feelings. More so, we're looking at how can we train behaviors or alter behavior patterns. And that was coming out in science and research. And also, it was being theorized into parenting terms. And so the information coming out probably around World War II and in the early 50s in books, was very behavior-based. And it was about rewarding and punishing behaviors, about training children to get the behaviors that you want. At that time, there was not a big focus on emotions or connection in parenting, but more so, how could you train your child? So an easy example of that would be sleep training. At that time, it was considered that you should let your child cry it out because you didn't want to raise a spoiled child. Um, and same if you if your baby was crying and crying and crying, you know you wouldn't want to spoil them too much by always picking them up. So you would just let them cry it out. And I'm kind of riffing here. but if you think about the World War II generation, like the the silent generation, you know, you would be seen and not heard. They had a very high behavioral standard. And they were the ones that were reading these books. Now, the thing about training behaviors is for the most part, it does work. But it doesn't look at the underlying needs for why those behaviors might be happening. So along came John Bowlby, and we're going to talk a lot about him today. He was a British psychologist and psychiatrist who was the founder of attachment theory. He was born in 1907, and he grew up in London in an upper middle class family. His father was a surgeon, and he wasn't around very much. He was cared for primarily by nannies, which at that time, in the place and the time that he lived and the amount of money that his family made, that was really common. So he really didn't spend a lot of time with his mom. However, when one of his nannies left for another job, it really traumatized him. Now imagine you're growing up with your primary caregiver. All of a sudden, one day they disappear because they got a new job and you never see them again. Well, that was his experience, and it really was foundational and formational to a lot of the work that he later did. In 1918, when he was about 11 or 12, he and his brother were sent to a boarding school. So again, they were sent away from the family. In 1921, he entered the Royal Naval College in Dartmouth and he trained to be a naval officer. So that would have been like in his late teens. And then he decided to study medicine at Trinity College in Cambridge in 1925. But after studying medicine for two years, he changed his focus to psychology. After graduating there, he spent a year as a volunteer teacher at some schools for children with behavioral issues. Again, you'll see a theme here where he's picking up some really foundational information for the work that he's going to be doing. After working there, he trained in psychiatry at Maudsley Hospital in London. And from 1937 to 1940, he worked as a psychiatrist at the London Child Guidance Clinic, Another school for quote-unquote maladjusted children or juvenile delinquents is probably what they would have been called then. Or now, what Karen Purvis would call them, are children that come from hard places. Now, the school where he worked, the London Child Guidance Clinic, viewed children's problems as coming from past adverse experiences in their families. And this approach was different than what a lot of other places were looking at at that time. And it really struck a chord with Bowlby. In other words, he was beginning to think that the kid's home life is what is foundational for making children turn out the way that they do with the behaviors that they have. So in 1946, he joined Tavistock Institute in London as a staff member, and there he began to research the effects of separation from primary caregivers on young children. Like What, is it, what does it do to a child if they're taken away from their primary caregiver? And knowing his background, I'm sure that was a very personal endeavor. Also happening at this time, you'll notice that's 1946. There were a lot of people he could study because World War II had just happened and he's in England. And if you think of it, this makes me think of the Chronicles of Narnia. You know how many children were taken out of London and out of the big cities and shipped off to safe places out in the country. And for months, maybe even years, they didn't see their family members. And then they came back again and were expected to just go back to life as normal. Well, for a lot of people, that didn't happen, because if you spend your formational years away from your parents and then come back to them, well, that's really disruptive. So he was beginning to look at that as well. And in the midst of all this, he began to develop attachment theory. So in 1951, he wrote a report for the World Health Organization on the mental health of homeless children. It was translated into 14 languages, and it looked at the importance of constant loving care by a mother figure for a child's healthy development. Later, Bowlby more fully shared his developed attachment theory in his work, Attachment and Loss. Here are some of the important aspects of attachment that Bowlby laid out, and all this is really helpful for what's coming next in this series. He said that the emotional bond between children and parents is what we call attachment. He argued that all humans are born with two complementary instincts that shape our development. One, the instinct to draw near to a trusted caregiver for safety and comfort when we're in distress. And two, the instinct to go out and explore and master the world around us when the coast is clear. These instincts bind us together in trusted relationships. His theory of attachment suggested that children come into the world biologically pre-programmed to form attachments with others. And this is what helps us survive in our families and really as a human species. He argued that a child forms a lot of different attachments, but there's one that's the most important one. And that's what we call the primary attachment. He suggested that there's a critical period for developing attachment. At that time, he was saying for the first two and a half years of life. That's the critical period for when these kids begin to form their most important attachments. But then later, he expanded that to say that there is a sensitive period for up to five years. So from zero to five, that's the big influential time for forming attachments. He had a hypothesis called the maternal deprivation hypothesis that suggested that continual attachment disruption between an infant and their primary caregiver could result in really long-term, maybe even lifelong, difficulties cognitively, socially, and emotionally. He also thought that attachment serves two functions. One, to protect people from potential threats or harm. And two, to learn how to regulate negative emotions when we're going through hard things. Okay, guys, let's take a breath. Are you following with me still? I know this is like a deep dive in history. You didn't even know that you're going to school today. But don't you feel really, really smart? <laughs> okay, let's move on to Mary Ainsworth. Bowlby had a lot of really helpful information and he did a lot of really great research. But his work was incredibly improved and expanded through his coworker, Mary Ainsworth. She was a Canadian American developmental psychologist who did further research on this attachment stuff that Bowlby had laid out. And in her work, she expanded it to figure out that there are actually specific patterns of attachment. And that's what we'll be talking about in the coming weeks. So this is what she did. Let's all just get like, get prepared for this because we're about to talk about a really intense study. And we're going to come back to it over and over again in the coming weeks. At Johns Hopkins, Dr. Mary Ainsworth did some really incredible research and a really intense experiment where she and her colleagues took 26 couples who were all parenting newborns. And then over the course of a year, they watched interactions between their infants and their primary caregivers. So for most of them, it was their mom, not in all cases, but in most of them. Then after it had been a year when those infants were between one and one and a half, they took part in an experiment called the strange situation. I'm sure most of you have heard of the strange situation and boy, is it strange. Also, I'm wearing Invisalign in my mouth and saying strange situation is really hard. So I apologize (laughs) if I stumble over that. So let's talk about what this experiment was all about and why it was so important. It was used to measure attachment in infants with their primary caregiver. And here's what they did. It was a very specific protocol. And it was a 21-minute long experiment broken down into three-minute sections. So every three minutes, something was changing. So this is how it started. A caregiver and their infant were brought into a room, and then they were videoed through a one-way mirror. If you guys are interested, I'm sure you can YouTube this because this is such important and well-documented research. It is, there are videos of it everywhere. And then they were put in situations that would mildly distress the child. Why we want to think about mildly is this. All people, if they're in enough distress, like in a life-threatening situation, they're going to seek attachment and refuge no matter what. But that doesn't really predict very much. But if you're in a little bit of stress, that's when you really can see the attachment stuff. So they wanted just a little bit of distress. So this is what they did. They had a stranger enter the room after three minutes and begin to converse with the mom. And the stranger would try to talk to the baby too. Okay, so that's a little weird, a little disconcerting. But then after three minutes of having the stranger in the room, the mother was cued to leave. So she would leave the room and now the infant was alone with the stranger. Well, that would produce some distress, I'm thinking. Three minutes after that, mom returns to the room and then the stranger leaves. So it's just mom and baby again. And they have three minutes to reunite and get calm and all that stuff. After another three minutes, the mom leaves her child alone in the playroom. And so now baby's alone in the room for three minutes. After another three minutes, the stranger re-enters the room and is there with the baby. And in the last three minutes, the mom returns and the stranger leaves. Now, what they found was whether or not those little babies looked like they were distressed by the situation There were physiological changes that took place in their cortisol levels that showed that for every single one of the infants, it was a stressful situation. Not crazy, life-threatening, stressful, but very stressful. And in watching that experiment, they found four predictable patterns of attachment that actually they have found could be replicated and expanded all over the world. And it has been for over 50 years. So this, it was like a really foundational experiment. And those four patterns that they found are what we're gonna be talking about over the next coming weeks. The first one is secure attachment. That's the healthy one. And then there are three forms of insecure attachment that they observed one called avoidant, one called anxious ambivalent, and one called disorganized. So Mary Ainsworth did a lot as far as attachment theory goes. And then following her, there have been plenty of other researchers, but we'll just talk about three main ones. There's another Mary called Mary Main. She tested and applied the findings of Bowlby and Ainsworth to look at how attachment plays out in adulthood. So remember, we've been looking mostly at infants and children, but Mary Main also looked at how that affects adults. And she and her colleagues developed an adult attachment interview, or the AAI, to help evaluate adults' positions towards attachment. Okay, great. Are you guys still with me? Take a deep breath. Stretch a minute. Now let's talk about what in the world all that is about. So attachment is just a theory, right? It's, I mean, still, truly, it's called attachment theory. I don't know that we can ever completely prove that that is the way that all humans are, like foundationally, concretely. But there's been so much research over the last 75 years that really continues to be proven over and over and over again And in my mind, and probably in yours as you're listening, a lot of it just makes sense, doesn't it? Like, it just feels like common sense that, yes, we come into the world looking for somebody who's going to take care of us, that we're made to be in relationship. And particularly, there are certain relationships that are really foundational and important to who we are and that we really regulate ourselves in safe relationships. And... You guys, whether you know it or not, you're running into this all over the place because really a lot of the parenting books that are coming out now, even a lot of marriage therapy books that are coming out now, are really based in attachment. So here are some of the main places you may have heard about it recently, although I'm not going to hit them all, but here are a few. Dan Siegel has done a lot of work in interpersonal neurobiology, and a lot of his work is based in attachment theory. He's written famous books called The Whole Brain Child, No Drama Discipline, and Parenting from the Inside Out. You've probably heard of Bessel van der Kolk's work, especially his book called The Body Keeps the Score, all about trauma. And a lot of his work also has to do with attachment. Psychiatrist Kurt Thompson, who I quoted in last week's episode, he also does a lot of work in interpersonal neurobiology. He has a great podcast called Being Known, just a plug if you want to go listen to that. And he's written books called "The Anatomy of the Soul: The Soul of Shame," and his work is also heavily influenced by attachment. A lot of the famous parenting experts right now that are looking more at dysregulation and how parents can help be present with their children, like Mona Delahook, Robin Goebbel, Dr. Becky at Good Inside. a lot of their work is attachment-based. Sue Johnson's work and writings on marriage, and even really, a lot of the work at the Gottman Institute is really attachment-based. And again, Karen Purvis and the work in adoption and foster care that's happening in our country has so much to do with attachment too. It's really revolutionized the way that we, really the world, but especially our country, looks at orphan care. You'll notice that there are no more orphanages in the United States, and a lot of that is thanks to John Bowlby and his work. In fact, even group homes are now diminishing over time in favor of foster care because we know that children need one-on-one interactions where they're seen and known and cared for and loved. Believe me, although the system is a very flawed and far from perfect, and foster care still does disrupt primary attachments, the trainings and underlying systems in our country have been drastically improved and by understanding theories of attachment and trauma. And so much more than that, has been touched by attachment. I mean, now that we're talking about it, you'll probably notice, just even as you're going through Instagram or Facebook, some of the information coming across to you, maybe on radio programs, it will sound very familiar and quite attachment-based. So next week, we will dive into the first attachment pattern, secure attachment. So I hope that you'll meet me here next Tuesday to hear more about that. Now to make this podcast series more applicable and interactive, I've been looking for ways that will help us think about attachment from different angles. One of the ways that I'm doing that is finding songs that reflect attachment patterns. So if you're not already following me on Facebook or Instagram, I hope you'll go find me there at Pause Renew Next. And in my stories and my reels, I'm posting a song every week that we can kind of look at together and see attachment themes. I also, at the end of every episode in this series, want us to look together at a scripture that reflects secure attachment. We are going to get so good at recognizing these attachment patterns as we practice together. So, today's scripture passage is Psalm 27, and it's focused on David's relationship with the Lord. You will hear themes of safety, confidence, fear or distress, right? And then reassurance and comforting. I'll be reading in the NIV The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He's really seeking that close proximity. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me, and His tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, Seek His face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your ways, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. Oh, I love these two verses, you guys, love them. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. He has a lot of safety and security in that relationship, doesn't he? Well, friends, if you listen to this whole thing, way to go, how smart are you now that you've heard all that really in-depth history lesson on attachment theory? (laughs) This has been a really great review for me and I'm learning so much and I hope that you are too. So you can meet me here again next Tuesday as we dive into the first pattern, Secure Attachment. I'm Jenny Detweiler with PRN. Pause, renew, next. May you be encouraged on your journey with Jesus.